And uh, we are coming to the end, and what a glorious end it is. Please uh, bow and pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, I ask you again, as I've asked you on so many different occasions, standing right here, that you send your Spirit. Send your Spirit into the hearts of the people that have have claimed you as Christ, so that, as you tell us in 1 Corinthians, that we will understand the spiritual things. Help us, Lord, to help to understand deeper what it means that you rose from the dead. And help me, Holy Spirit, to preach it well. In Jesus' name, amen. Many years after Thomas Jefferson drafted the Declaration of Independence, he authored uh, what has become known as The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth in 1820. Most people know this by another name, the Jefferson Bible. If we can say it this way, This Bible was actually Jefferson's private declaration of independence from Orthodox Christianity. The unique thing about the Bible is that he literally cut out with a literal razor blade all the parts of the Gospels that didn't fit his deistic theology. He cut out all the supernatural, all the miracles. For example, in his version of the Bible, if you have your Bible open to chapter 27, you can glance down at verse 60, and you can read there the last line of Jefferson's Bible, which reads, And they laid him in a new tomb, which he had cut from the rock, and rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. That's it. The end. The end of Jefferson's Bible. Go on to the next gospel, Mark. Jefferson was willing to have Christ suffer. He was willing to accept his death. He was willing to accept that he was laid dead in a tomb. But he was not willing to accept that Jesus rose from the dead. With a simple slice of his razor, he cuts out the very heart of the gospel. So let's look together at what Jefferson missed out on, starting in verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. 
Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus whom was crucified. He's not here. For he has risen. As he said, come and see where he lay. Then go and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and with great joy. And ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave sufficient money to the soldiers and said, tell people... His disciples came by night and stole him away while you were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this very day. Jefferson had stopped reading long before this. But we do not. Matthew continues to write. And so what does Matthew want us to know? What does Matthew want us to know? There could be a lot said of the resurrection. Every Easter, every pastor in the nation tries to say all those things. A lot can be said. A lot is said in the New Testament. But we're in Matthew. What does Matthew want us to know what is contained in Matthew that is critical for us another way to put it what did Jefferson miss and I think Jefferson missed first of all he missed the evidence for the resurrection the evidence for the resurrection General Dwight D. Eisenhower was a forward thinker in many, many respects. He came back from World War II and he had seen the German highway system, how it connected the the country so well and made it so efficient. So when he became president, many of you maybe even remember this, he signed legislation that funded the interstate highway system that now we enjoy. We are connected as a as a country, but never before. Eisenhower also saw the concentration camps. And he envisioned a day, Eisenhower envisioned a day, when people would deny that the Holocaust ever happened. In April 1945, he wrote a letter to George C. Marshall saying, the thing... Things I saw defy description. 
The visual evidence and the verbal testimony of starvation, cruelty, bestiality were so overpowering, it left me sick. I made the visits deliberately, though, in order to be be in a position to give first-hand evidence of the things, if ever in the future, there develops a tendency to change these allegations into mere propaganda. Eisenhower ordered the collection of of documentation of the Holocaust, resulting in 80,000 feet of film footage and collected thousands and thousands of photographs, including ones of himself at concentration camps giving first-hand witness. First-hand witness is powerful. As a matter of fact, in a trial, first-hand witness, if it is corroborated, is the most damning evidence in a trial. Lawyers know that if they have that, it's point, set, match. Matthew is careful to do just that. He tells us that there were two witnesses to Jesus' burial. Not just once, but twice. He tells us in verse 61 there that, that they sat opposite the tomb watching it. They knew where Jesus was buried. The first verse right after Jefferson's slice tells us that. The women knew where the tomb was and they watched the stone being rolled in front of it. And these same women, three days later we see in 28 verse 1, were headed back to the tomb. There it says, After the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. The same two women. Now, there may be many theories, and there are actually many theories, and you've heard these theories if you've been a Christian over a year. You've heard these theories that disprove the resurrection, the swoon theory, where Jesus actually didn't die, but just swooned on the cross, fainted on the cross. He looked like he was dead, so they laid him in the, in the tomb, and he woke up in the tomb and walked out. Or the hallucination theory. That all the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection, all these people were just hallucinating. They were so gung-ho for Jesus, for this prophecy to be fulfilled, that they actually hallucinated. Or the stolen body theory. This is perhaps the oldest because it's embedded right here in Matthew 28. Did you read it? Verses 11 through 15. The Roman guards went back to the, to the chief priests and Pharisees, the ones who had ordered that the, that, the, that the stone be sealed. And they went to the Pharisees and chief priests, and the chief priests paid them off and to tell, to spread the story that the disciples had stolen the body, the body stolen. But there's another theory, another theory that, that is very salient to Matthew here, and that is the unknown tomb theory. The unknown tomb. And in this theory, the women simply went to the wrong tomb. And they went to this empty tomb and saw that it was empty, 
And they started telling, and they assumed that Jesus had risen and started telling the story. Jesus is risen. But just look at how careful Matthew is. Again, look at verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite the tomb. They're sitting there. They're watching this. They know where the tomb is. Brothers and sisters, if you bury a loved one in Mount Heights Cemetery, which is probably the size of the tomb area where the bodies were buried back then, if you bury a loved one in Mount, Se- Mount Heights Cemetery up the road here, in three days, do you just forget where they're buried? Do you forget where your loved one is buried? And neither did they. And just think of it for a second. There were, we don't know how many, but there were Roman guards clustered around one of those tombs that Sunday. So you can imagine, if, even if they went to the wrong tomb, they would look around and go, oh yeah, over there. Matthew is making it crystal clear, brothers and sisters. The women were eyewitnesses. Not only to where the tomb was, but to the angelic encounter here in verses 2 through 7. And it says there that an angel of the Lord came down and he rolls the stone away and sits on the stone and greets the women and tells them not to be afraid. But he also tells them another thing. Did you see it? Come and see where he lay and go and tell. Come and see. Go and tell. Warren Wiersbe says, The stone was not rolled away to allow Christ to come out, but it was rolled away for them to look in and see that he was gone. The true Easter message is, Come and see. Go and tell. Brothers and sisters, that is a very, very early rhythm that Christians have had since the very beginning. Come and see, go and tell. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Jesus is going to do in the, in the very next verses with the Great Commission, isn't he? Come and see, go and tell. That's the pattern set up from the very beginning. And I was thinking this week, that's the pattern of our week, isn't it? Come and see. Come and experience Jesus in worship and then go and tell people. That's still our experience today. Come and see each week in worship and go and tell somebody. Come and experience the risen Christ. That's what we're doing right now. We're experiencing the risen Christ. And then go and tell somebody. Come and see. Come and Come and see the ripped bread and the blood spilt. And then go and tell somebody. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good all over again. That's what we're doing here, brothers and sisters. We're tasting and we're seeing that the Lord is good. And then go and tell. That's the rhythm. Come and hear about the kindness and mercy of Jesus. And then go and tell somebody about the kindness and the mercy of Jesus. Come and hear 
about his loving sacrifice. That's what we do in the sermon here. We're telling you, we're telling about the sacrifice of Christ. And then let that propel you out into the world to tell somebody. Because that's exactly what it did to the two Marys. It propelled them. They were propelled to go and tell and were greeted by Jesus Christ himself in verse 9. And that brings us to our second point. Jefferson missed the heart of the gospel. Jefferson missed the heart of the gospel. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the linchpin. Jesus' resurrection is the heart of of who, what we believe. And Jefferson simply just cut that right out. And if Matthew's gospel ended at Jefferson, at what he suggests in verse 60, then all of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is true. If we believe it ended at verse 60, all of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is true of us. Because he says, if Christ has not been raised, then the scriptures are untrustworthy. Can't trust him. He says, if Christ has not been been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Why are we even preaching? He writes there, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile. What are we believing in? A dead savior? What good is that? He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our sin penalty has not been paid. We are still in our sins. The death penalty is going to be applied to us, he's saying. If Christ had not been raised, the dead who died believing, all those people that you know, all those people that you know who died believing that Jesus was the Christ, are Just dead. No hope. And he says, if Christ had not been raised, he even says, then we as Christians are to be pitied above all men. Because our main purpose in life, everything, the center of which all of our life revolves, the orbit that we're in, is useless. Our whole life purpose It's like being CEO of a, of a company from its birth and then it just dies. The purpose is gone. All those years I put in, gone. What was my life all about? But Matthew is really careful to show us that Jesus did rise bodily from the grave. They grasped his feet. Look at verse 9. They grasped his feet. They took hold of him. Thus Peter can write, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope. How is the question you should be asking right there in that verse? He's caused us to be born again into a living hope. How? Paul? Peter? How? He says it right there. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection is at the core of why we believe there is eternal life. That gives us the hope. 
Paul tells us in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. Brothers and sisters, there is spiritual power in Christ's resurrection. That's the power behind salvation. Yes, he, he absorbed our sins on the cross, but if he, as, as, as Jefferson says, is laid in the tomb and his body is rotting, no power. None. You might think you're saved, but if Jefferson is right, you're not. That's why Paul can write, we're to be pitied. Romans 6, 4 says, we were buried with him, then baptized into his death, death, so that, Paul writes, so that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life. The resurrection is the power. It's what makes it all true. That's why Paul could write that litany in 1 Corinthians 15. The bodily resurrection guarantees it all. Daniel Doriani is a professor at, of theology at Covenant Seminary. And he was asked one Easter to participate in a panel discussion, as many, many famous pastors are during Easter, alongside a Jewish rabbi and a liberal Protestant. And he writes that he had one goal that day, one goal, to explain the physical resurrection of Jesus was not a myth, but a reality. So when the camera lights went on, he wrote, he got them to agree that Jesus' spirit yet lives, and they agreed to that. That there is life after death, and, and they all agreed with that. And that, the, that Jesus enjoys such life with the eternal God in heaven, and they, and they agreed with that. Then he proposed that the entire New Testament and Orthodox Christianity through the centuries has declared that Jesus' physical body emerged from the grave. His resurrected body had changed in some ways, but it was still roughly like ours, he explained. Solid to the touch. His feet, with his feet, he walked on solid ground. With his mouth, he ate solid food. With his hands, he washed his face. Doriani ex- expected at this point that there would be pushback. But to his surprise, there was none. Until the moment the camera lights went off. And then the person sitting next to him leaned over and said, Of course, we don't believe it was a physical resurrection. You see, there's another theory. Another theory that a lot of people believe. Another theory that, by the way, leaks into Orthodox Christianity. And that is the spiritual resurrection theory. That yes, Jesus rose from the dead, but he rose spiritually, not physically. His spirit rose. You know, much like an like a, like a apparition. The essential of who Jesus was, but not his body. His body still lay in the tomb. But again, Matthew is so careful. He tells us that the Marys grasped his feet 
touched him. At the very point, the earliest record we have of his resurrection, they touched him. They didn't go through him. They grabbed his feet. See, each part of God's incarnation is important. Each part is important. He needed to be human. Christ needed to be human in order to be a sacrifice for us. It couldn't be bull for Blake. It couldn't be pigeon for Blake. It couldn't even be lamb for Blake. It had to be human for human. Jesus had to be human. He also had to be divine in order to be payment enough for our sins. I don't know if you've watched this movie on Netflix. I just did. It's a movie called Worth. Very interesting movie. It's based on the true story of Kenneth Feinberg, who's played by Michael Keaton, who is the lawyer tasked to determine how much compensation to give the families, each family, after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. It's fascinating because he has to ask the question, how much is life worth? How much is a life worth? That's the, that's the essential question that they were tasked to answer. In the movie, it's interesting, Feinberg comes up with a formula. We love our formulas. He comes up with a formula based on the type of job the deceased had, how big his family was, the marital status, future earnings potential, all these, all these variables. At one point in the movie, he sits down in his study and starts doing the calculations, and he starts putting numbers besides each family. 250K, 340K, 1.1 million, 2.6 million. You realize that we have the answer to that question in our Bibles? Do you know what a, what a life is worth? Do you know what, a, what an eternal soul is worth? The life of God's Son. That's how much it's worth. His death can pay the sins of all who come to him because he's God. Jesus also needed to suffer and die. That's another part of the incarnation that's absolutely crucial. The God-man had to die in order to pay our penalty. That's the spiritual law of gravity. That's our spiritual law of gravity. You can't avoid it. Sin equals death. Someone has to pay. Someone has to pay. And if you're sitting here today and you don't know Christ, someone has to pay for your sin. It can be you. And many people pay that penalty. But Christ came to pay that penalty for you. That spiritual law of gravity so that you don't have to pay. And Jesus died so that all who trust in him may have eternal life. And that to, that, that to become a reality, for us to have spiritual life, Jesus has to rise bodily from the grave. New Testament makes a huge deal out of Jesus rising physically. Not spiritually. A huge deal. 
I mean, if you're sitting there, you can maybe even think of some of the ways it does this. I mean, the most significant way, the one that most people go to, is, is doubting Thomas, right? He appears before the disciples, in the, probably in the upper room, or room that they're, they're crouching in, and he tells Thomas to come up. And what does he tell him to say? What does he tell him? Just believe in me. No. He says, come. Here, he took his hand and put it in the holes. He took his hand and put it in his side. Thomas felt Jesus. You think of the time in the end of, of, of John when Jesus is there on the shore and, and the disciples are fishing and they come, Peter comes swimming in and the rest follow and he's there and he, he's making food for them and he eats with them. And here Matthew gives us a small but another significant piece of evidence. They grasp his feet. Indicating that Jesus was raised bodily. And that's critical. That's critical because if Jesus is raised bodily, that guarantees our bodily resurrection. That's what it guarantees. You remember from last week's sermon, the consummation after Christ returns. Life will not be so unlike life going on now. We don't know a whole lot about it, but it'll be like this, minus some big things, and adding some big things, minusing sin that so easily ensnares us. Can you, I mean, we can't even imagine life without sin. Have you ever done that? Have you ever sat down and thought, okay, what would my day have looked like? This is a good thought experiment. What would my day have looked like had sin not been entangled in everything? I encourage you to do that thought experiment. And I think if you think about it and meditate on it enough, you will see your day is pockmarked with sin. How that person looked at me. Oh, that, that, the tone. Oh, they're patronizing me. Oh, I lost it with my kids. Lost it with my wife. Lost it with my husband. My husband doesn't love me. My wife doesn't love me. Because of this and this. It's all over the place. But that will not be true. When Christ comes again, that will be subtracted. You know what will be added? Our relationship with God, Emmanuel. God with us. Perfect relationship. In God's presence. Here on earth. Don't ask me what that looks like. And lastly, when Christ returns, our souls will be reunited with our bodies. And we will have a body like that of Christ, as Paul says in Philippians 3. Don't know what that means, but it will be able to grasp each other's ankles. It will be physical. That's what Paul means when he calls Jesus the first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15. Because of his 
bodily resurrection, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he is the first fruits of those who have died. What does that mean? What is Paul using there? Have you ever paused to think about that? What do you mean, Paul, first fruits? Well, he's pulling from the Old Testament where the harvest in the fields could not be harvested until the owner of the field took the first fruits, the first harvest, and took it to the temple and laid it on the altar, offering it to God. Then they could go back and harvest their fields. Until then, couldn't touch it. It stayed the way it is. And that's what Paul has in mind when he writes, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through one man, the resurrection of death, the dead comes through one man. Because Christ was raised bodily, we will be raised bodily. And that's what Thomas Jefferson removed from us. With one slice of his razor blade, he cut the heart right out of the gospel. Author and editor of Christianity Today, Russell Moore, wrote this. A few years ago, I stood at the grave of Thomas Jefferson. I was prompted to give him thanks for his life and legacy. After all, if it weren't for Jefferson and his majestic Declaration of Independence, there might not even have been a United States of America. But standing at Jefferson's grave prompted me to realize that Jefferson is well in the grave. Jefferson's anti-supernaturalism is seen in visual form in his famous Bible with the miraculous parts cut out. Most significantly, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, he writes. Russell says, I love Jefferson for standing up against King George, but not for standing up against King Jesus. Thomas Jefferson is still dead. And I thank God for him, he writes. But his grave reminds me of how limited even his legacy can be in the grand scheme of trillions of years of cosmic time. It also reminds me of the contrast with the one whose monument isn't a house or a simple grave marker. It's instead a borrowed tomb that isn't even filled anymore. That empty tomb is itself a declaration of independence. By raising Jesus from the dead, God declared him and all who are in him to be free from death, free from the curse, free from Satan's accusations, I suppose you could say that Jesus was endowed by his Father with certain inalienable rights, among those life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, except that these blessings don't end at the grave. That's the heart of the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word today. Thank you so much for your power that you use to raise Christ from the dead so that we can have hope of being raised as well. Lord God, we look forward to that. With the world and how, how sin-stained we are and how we stumble and fall on a daily basis, come Lord Jesus, come. 
In Jesus' name, amen.